Ryan. Thanks to Cry Malt, local malt for local beer. This is Radio Brews News. My name is Matt Kirkegaard, founder of Australian Brews News. And as ever, I'm joined by my good friend, colleague and all-round good beer guy, Pete Mitchum. Pete, what a week it's been. What a good beer week. You can it put that on a poster. You're almost good. good beer week. Yeah. No, it has, it's been a very good week. But you were right in the thick of it, co-hosting the Australian International Beer Awards with Beer Diva Curly Waldhorn, Craft Beer College at Gabs, Brewers and Chewers at the local tap house. What else were you involved in? Even snuck in a little bit of uh, Brews News Q&A at the, the Cryer Malt Trade Hub. Which is uh, what we're going to be playing one of today. Um, but yeah, yeah, mate, give us your thoughts. Um, yeah, a bit of a whirlwind. It's sort of, um, it's the week of weeks. It's just so good to see so many people in, in the one place at the one time. And the recurring theme, the comment, we are, so many times you just sort of, I'd, I'd be sort of sitting back, leaning up against the bar, just watching the parade. And whoever I was drinking with, you just sort of look and go, this is really cool, isn't it? Like, you know, just the engagement and the punters and, and everyone's just, you know, sipping and swirling and, oh, have a, have a sniff of this or taste this or what are you drinking? Whereas, you know, we, we often talk about the bad rap that, or the bad uh, press that, that beer gets. I just thought it was terrific, and I'm honoured and, and proud to be, to be a part of it. It was uh, it was a very special week, but it's not over just yet. I mean, good beer week's over, but those involved in Gabs taking it to Sydney this weekend, ramping up and, and sort of, you know, packing up the containers and getting them shipped off, and uh, we'll do it all again. I can't believe how big a job uh, that must be for the uh, for the team, but they've got a very good team behind them at Gabs. Yeah, there's a dedicated, uh, called the Build the build team, and they go in ahead and um, and have everything all set up according to the to the plan. And then the uh, then the brewery team comes in, or the beer team, and and then they'll uh, set up the all the lines and all that sort of stuff. And we're lucky enough to sort of come in a little bit closer to the end of it, just to sort of basically tie the ribbon in a bow and make it all look nice, and then take all the credit for it. But now those guys behind the scenes, and and to Craig and uh, and Ruta, who are the team who have been appointed this year to uh, festival director, Craig Williams, an absolutely magnificent job. And for a number of reasons, one, it's freed Steve and Guy up to enjoy their festival and to cast their eye with a little bit more, you know, time and detail, look at it with a detailed eye so they can kind of look at, oh, wouldn't it be good, you know, we could do this. Whereas, you know, when you're directing the festival as well on the ground, you're so often you're putting out spot fires or you're responding to, to lots of things happening. You know, so I think it was good for them. But you just can't underestimate the value of... Uh, of and look, it's, it's got to the point now where, yeah, it's great that as the festival gets bigger, rather than just cashing in, they're actually reinvesting that money into getting the right people in the right positions to make sure that the experience... Because the, the reality is it's, it's like... Um, and we'll talk about it a, a little bit later, but uh, whether it was you know, Pirate Life last year, Bolter this year, when a new brewery sort of hits and, and you know, takes out some key awards and trophies, it sets the bar fairly high in one way, and Gabs has sort of done that. People coming back and going, what's going to be new this year? So you, you've got to keep that offering fresh. Yeah, uh, I, mean, I only got to be at Gabs for the very first session this year, and again, just overwhelmed with it it is just such a brilliant event and the infrastructure and the amount of work that's involved that you just described you know it makes my head hurt thinking about it and it also makes me realize that i have absolutely no tolerance for people talking about the ticket cost of that event and not looking at what you get because they go in there and they've got a beautiful building and nothing and everything that goes in there goes in from scratch and the army of people that have got to be paid and just to get it set up and the amount of cost and the expense to to make even just the signage to make you know, lines run smoothly and people don't see half of the organization that goes into it they just see the finished product and 
all of that costs money to make it as good a festival as, as it is. Yeah, exactly. But the, the, the one thing that I did notice, and again, it's it's not fair to, to uh, draw any conclusions from the daytime session on the first Friday, when you tend to get a lot of the industry people there and the real enthusiasts who can get time off work, but you're not getting the really big crowds that run the rest of the weekend. But with so much more on the upper deck, the event seemed to be a little bit more spread out and a little bit less energetic. The energy wasn't there. Albert, Albert, yeah, Albert. But, but again, that was the, the worst session to try and judge that. Yeah, yeah, the vibe was definitely still there. I, I'm looking, and, and there were, I think, and I'm going to, Go out on a limb here, but I'm pretty sure it was something like the Saturday afternoon session only had 15 fewer guests than the Saturday night session. But again, very different vibe. When it's dark and the lights kick in and uh, and all that sort of thing, it, the Royal Exhibition Building just sort of takes on a, a different personality again. But it never seemed that, you know, elbow to elbow crush that it has in the past. So, yeah, utilising the upper deck and having all the food upstairs and a lot more brewers upstairs, roving entertainment upstairs, and also having the, and I don't want to give away too much, but for those going to Sydney, the performance stage on top of Container A, the container bar. Go to the Facebook page. I actually shot some Facebook Live video and you can see one of the acrobats performing. He's a great dude. He often performs in Fed Square and various places around Melbourne and does the same act and it's just magnificent. When you think he's a long way up, with no safety net, no harness, concrete floor. And four blokes who may or may not have been drinking beer holding the poster. <laughs> well, two of, the, two of the volunteers were were Gab's volunteers, so they, okay. they would have been zero, zero. But, yeah, you do take your life into your own hands with people you, you don't know. So that performance stage, there was a magnificent view of everything that went on from there, either from down below or, even better, from up on the top level. So it drew people upstairs. It's just, as I say, it's one thing after another. It's those one percenters. You don't sort of consider, we want to drive people upstairs. Why do we want to drive them upstairs? Because then that will give you know, a different feel, but we've got to give them something to do while they're up there, a reason to go up there. Okay, there's breweries, but what if they, you know... So it's all that kind of thing that just sort of uh, all knits together just to, to make a, a very quality product that I'm very, very, very chuffed to be part of. Mm. And look, great sessions uh, at the Craft Beer College as well. There's a little bit of a sense of deja vu all over again with talking about cabs. It just goes from strength to strength. They do make it better every year. But, you know, I guess we do find ourselves saying the same high praise. Again, nothing negative. I think I've been accused of shit canning a couple of things in the past, but I couldn't fault it. Anything that's been raised in the past has been dealt with and uh, improved upon. And stay tuned, Brisbane. Watch this space. Yes. Well, that'll, that'll be very, very exciting. Can't wait to, well, to, to for an announcement that may or may not be made. Uh, what else from the week, Prof? Uh, well, the Australian International Beer Awards. Very exciting time for Queensland. It was. It was. And three champion breweries, two from southeast Queensland and one that's, you know, very, very near neighbour. So if you kind of go, you know, southeast Queensland, Northern Rivers area did very well. Yeah. With the, the three champion small brewery being our very good friends at Green Beacon, who we'll be going up to visit. They've probably put the rent up now, have they, for our, our gig with uh, Charlie Bamford? Actually, uh, there's been a change of venue there because, uh, unfortunately, Green Beacon doesn't have a private function room and uh, Charlie's in town on a Saturday. I don't think we've announced this before, so this is a little bit of letting the cat out of the bag. Oh, sorry. I should, I should have. I should have turned up to rehearsal. <laughs> um, but yes, we Charlie Bamforth, the fifth of August, I think it is, um, is in town. He's asked whether uh, we want to do something with him. Of course, we said yes. But uh, we were looking at Green Beacon as Australia's medium craft brewery and now Australia's champion small craft brewery at the AIBAs. Uh, oh, sorry, but no, they they don't have a separate champion. function room, so it would have involved them closing the you know, bar for the night, um, which. 
just gets a little bit hard financially for a brew bar. So we've moved it up the road to Newstead, who have a nice private room. So Newstead will be the very kind host. But back to the AIBAs, they're very exciting to see Green Beacon, which just goes from strength to strength with their great beer and very exciting for Bolter as well. Yeah, yeah, and look, for both of those, I think it's probably not something that you'll blow your own trumpet about, but I think you can take a little bit of credit for, not perhaps for putting them on the map is, is perhaps, you know, putting a little bit too much GST on it, but certainly in terms of your advice to those breweries and particularly in the early days, your support of Green Beacon, when admittedly, and, and I know you fed this back to them, that sometimes the beers were really, really good, but sometimes they weren't. That's the thing I think that has really changed. And I think that speaks volumes. That And, and the fact that they've, they've gone back to back effectively with the craft beer awards and now the Australian International Beer Awards shows that QA and QC is kicking in and you know near enough is not good enough anymore and it's a you know a cautionary tale to all brewers particularly those 150 or so that are on paper at the moment and in planning to various degrees I think that the thing with Green Beacon and, and your support of them um, having them on getting them in at the ECA has exposed them to a, a wider non-beer audience or a you know non-inverted commas craft crowd so well done to you. Oh, mate, look, that's very generous of you to say. I sort of uh, feel very uncomfortable, you know, in, in vagling myself in any way into their win because I think the guys have, their beers were a little bit variable in the first, you know, six to 12 months that they opened. But their brewer, Johan, who's just, he is fastidious. He is just absolutely control quality oriented. He is a guy that deserves the credit and um, just doing amazing things. And the, the great shame is that we'll never get the chance to speak to Johan. He is painfully shy um he won't even sort of uh, come on behind a, a bed sheet he's so shy so we won't ever get the chance to chat with him but he speaks through his beers and it is a great yeah, and another man who's very very excited yeah, on the flip side um and in a sameness um scotty hargrave from from bolter who's not shy but also very much lets his beers do the talking for him as well in that same vein yeah and i noted this again if you go to our facebook site i um recorded a very brief um, chat with uh, Scotty uh, celebrating the win, and I sound like, <laughs> in, in the spirit of Queensland, sounded like Darren Lockyer. Um, sounded like I've been on the tear for a few days. The voice was not even barely holding it together, but Scotty was uh, eloquent. And I, I did put to him that I, I just had a sense in his award speech at the AIBAs and um, some of the things have been said that there was a note of vindication, that there has been a little bit of you know, niggle um, in, in, in you know, what I described as snarky static um, in, in the background of you know, Bolter. And he put it himself, you know, people have the feeling that because of the guys that are the owners or the guys that set it up, that Bolter has it a little bit easy. And whilst they've had a bit of recognition for that, it's the beers that people are going back for. And I'm really excited for Scotty and the whole team um, that they did so well and that we can start talking about Bolter's beers and not the, uh, the the owners. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, proof of the pudding is the pudding. And at last year's um, stand that we had at the Ecker when we had Bolter on, now, uh, the marketing, obviously, the, the branding itself, it's clean and it's neat and it's welcoming and all that sort of thing. But once people actually tasted the XPA... They'd sort of come back, you know, later and go, mate, I'll have another that, that bolter. Yeah, give us a bolter. And you go, oh, mate, we've, we've actually changed that. It's, it's still bolter, but it, we've changed it to a, uh, it's an alt brown. I don't care, mate, just pull that handle and whatever comes out, I'll give you eight bucks for. <laughs> because it, it was bolter. Um, so the, the beer, the beer really, um, you know, they came away thinking, this is a, wow, this is really good beer. Um, and, and, and that sort of, you know, um, got them back for the next one. 
Very much, and it, it, it's interesting. I think a lot of people were surprised with the beer that they launched with, which was the XPA. I think, you know, when you hear about four surfers, there was a suggestion that they may have come out with a like a, a fairly generic lager or something that was much sort of... Yeah, summer ale. Yeah, a, a Kolsch, that sort of style to, to launch, to, to go after that audience. And they came out with a beer that, you know, was very malt and hop driven and a little bit more challenging than I think a lot of people might have expected. But then a lot of people were disappointed with the the, the brown. They said, oh, it's, it's a really soft brown ale, but it's a beautifully made brown ale. And I think you, you don't understand the Queensland market if you think that any form of beer that colour is an easy sell um, because people just sort of look at a glass that is, you know, mud brown and say, I don't like dark beers. So, you know, I think both of their beers were very clever and, you know, Hopefully, as Scott said, they can use the star power ownership to shine the light on good beer, which benefits everybody. And at the end of the day, if they're, if, if they're not doing what they need to be doing in the brew house, it doesn't matter who owns the brewery. And we've seen a lot of breweries fail despite uh, you know, star ownership. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So, uh, yeah, no, congratulations to those guys. And I do have to say, you know, congratulate. Without, I'm very conscious that Queensland is my patch, um, and I don't mean to not recognize all of the brewers who won medals and, and and trophies but you know queensland has been a little bit slower than say western australia and victoria which have been the real powerhouses over the last couple of years and when i did a very quick count on friday morning taking out the design gold medals i think there design was design and packaging design yep. and packaging gold medals i think there were 115 gold medals awarded um, out of 1890 entries and queensland won over 10 percent of them queensland took uh 13 golds so congratulations to all of the brewers that did that I, I, you know, for, for me even though it is my backyard I'm, it's very exciting to see that there is another state that is starting to sort of say hey we, we're not just an isolated top brewery in amongst a sea of dross there is a, a lot of good quality beer really spreading uh, in the Queensland market yeah. so yeah very very exciting yeah, and really good to see, you know, with, without naming all of them because we'll, we'll, you know, we'll miss out on some, but for like for Black Ops, um, Ballistic, who else? There was a couple of other smaller ones that, um, that I won't say surprising, but sort of a, who, who popped up on the radar for the first time this year and and with multiple golds or, mul- you know, multiple um, medals, which was which was really good. Mate, I, I'm quite happy to say Ballistic was, <laughs> dare I say, a bolter. Um Ballistic was a uh, was an absolute surprise. I've tried their beers and I thought, you know, like I've tried some really good beers and some, you know, sort of uh, beers that you know it's a new brewery. Um, but to see them, I think they were finalists in two trophies without actually managing to pull the trophy, but they got three gold medals um, for a brewery that only opened its doors. I think they launched their beers in January, but have still been getting it out there. I just think that that was, uh, you know, full credit to them. Um, you know, very, very exciting uh, and fascinating to see where it goes from here. So, Lockie and uh, David, uh, congratulations. As you said, um, Black Ops, two gold medals, uh, weighed out at Ipswich. Um, that was the other one I was thinking of, yeah. 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 Um, four hearts. Four hearts uh, for his uh, Pilsner, I think it was. Yeah, and the Pilsner was was an interesting one because it was sort of, given that we we often talk about you know okay yeah IPAs big and it's 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 the you know the wonderkind of of the Australian beer scene. Some interesting figures that Tommy Delmont threw at me the other day. He said IPA so you know, the non mainstream beer is around four percent um, of that four percent. IPA is around three percent of of sales. So it's really and, and and we often talk about what's what's next. Oh, it's going to be the next kind of you know it's New England IPAs, hazy IPAs, all that sort of. Sorry, just run through that figure again. So, so IPA represents about three percent of um of the beer sold in Australia. 
so three quarters of the craft market is IPAs. Is that? Um, oh, I don't know. You asked me to do maths. It's too early in the morning. So, so it's three three percent of craft beer sales, or three percent of total beer sales no, is IPA. Uh, well, no, I don't think it's. I think it's. I think it's of, of craft, but I don't know how they get that figure. So maybe it is okay. of, the, of the whole. We might have to. Have to check. But anyway, I, I just assumed that it would be a much bigger sort of percentage. But anyway, my point was that um, this year, and we've seen Bolter launch a Pilsner and a cracking Pilsner at that. Um, Hawkers have got a, a sensational Pilsner. You and I shared, of course, three Ravens, the, the Thornbury Lager, which is their, you know, a, a Pils. Um, I think that's the next, uh, okay, well, you know what, We're, we've got a bit more confidence as a as a category now, and we've, we're confident enough to kind of stand up and say, you know what, a test of a really good, you know, the brewer's skill is a really good Pilsner, and there's still a lot of drinkers out there who want that, that sort of beer. The AIBAs this year was probably disappointing. In the, the, the Pilsner category was probably the, the disappointing one. Um, speaking to a couple of the judges who, who got to taste Pilsners, there were just a lot that were quite nice lagers, but just weren't, you know, just weren't there as a, as a Pilsner. Um, so anyone who won a gold in the Pilsner category must have had an absolute cracker, an absolute spanker. Oh, there you go. Uh, I'll make sure uh, that feedback goes back to Wade. But uh, very, very exciting for Queensland for such a broad um, selection of breweries to, to get it. Uh, also coming out of the awards, White Rabbit winning, So, which was a little bit the, the, the applause for Champion Beer was a little bit muted, I thought. Maybe that's, uh, you know, it came the same day that the uh, CBIA announced it they were becoming the Independent Brewers Association, so there might have been a little bit of uh, sort of feeling around that. But uh, I, I was incredibly surprised that a white ale, that the White Rabbit White Ale, did so well. And, you know, award-winning beer writer James Atkinson wrote us a great article, An Unloved Beer Style Has Its Day. And uh, I, I think the wheat beer and the white ale um, just don't get the love that they probably deserve. So it was great to see the style awarded, irrespective of the owner. Yeah, given that there are quite a few um, Australian breweries who have dropped wheat beers from their from their regular roster, or yeah, yeah like we might do it a, a one-off here and there, but have sort of the public seem to have moved away from wheat beers. Whereas I think for you and I, wheat beer was was kind of the IPA of of our day. Wheat beer, wheat beer was the the beer that ah, oh, hang on now, this is different. This isn't you know thin mainstream fizzy lager. This is wow, what what is this? Ten years, fifteen years down the track, it was IPA. And and so I guess maybe it's it's a bit of an ebb and flow, you know, what is it, peaks and troughs, um, and maybe wheat's just kind of wit and sours, and I guess we're moving into more of the you know gozers and lambics and that sort of thing at the moment. So maybe wheat is is just is just kind of a bit passe. So it was good. Look, it was a great example of um, how the AIBAs work because there was quite a bit of surprise that that yeah that white rabbit did get the the gong for. So for champion wheat beer and then the champion Australian beer overall. And just to put it just very briefly into context from the judges' point of view, this is to explain, to, I guess, to our listeners who might, might not be sure how, how those major trophies are, are determined, all the golds in each category are then retasted by a, a selected panel. Just, you know, we grab eight judges, six judges, four judges, whoever it might be. Here are four beers. They've all they're all gold medals, so you don't need to score them. But what you need to do is tell me which is your best favourite, which is your least favourite. You've got four beers there, so I want three, two, one, zero, and four or five judges will do that. The one that ends up with the most votes that gets the the champion trophy. That that that's how it's worked out. Then all of those champion trophies, nineteen of them, so from um, class A through to class S, at the very end uh, are then all poured out again 
um, as, a, as a flight of 19 beers, and there'd be probably 30, 35 judges, 40 judges maybe, who are selected, and I was lucky enough to, to be asked to, to sit in and, and determine the trophy rounds, and we've got to mark them 18 down to, down to zero. The highest scoring international beer wins best international beer trophy, and the highest scoring Australian one scores that. So, so that wheat beer was a better example of a wheat beer than, say, the Australian lager was of an Australian lager, or you know the dark ale, or whatever else, whatever uh, Australian beers were in that lot. Yeah, I'm glad you explained that, Prof, because there's a lot of snark on the uh, website and Facebook and, you know, oh, that's a company that that beer won, you know, uh, there are better versions of the style. Sure, if you've got the bottle in front of you and you know exactly what it is, you may be viewing that. Or well, let's it, face it, mo- yeah, most people wouldn't know how good it is because they'd look at the label and go, well, I'm not going to buy that because it's, you know, it's not craft. Exactly. So, so at the end of the day, yeah, as I said before, the proof of the pudding is the pudding. Yeah, exactly. So when it's just put in front of you with, with here's a beer, just tell me what you think of it. Well, actually, that's a really good example of a, you know, a wheat. I had a um, had occasion to try a couple of the White Rabbit beers off tap recently, and they were just spectacular. They have an incredibly good chocolate stout at the moment. Um, that's their seasonal. The Teddy Widder, which is a Berliner Weiss, was bang on. Um, yep. That, that was their first Gabs beer from uh, uh, White Rabbit. But the, the the beer that was the real surprise was their pale ale that they used to call a Belgian pale ale that was a little bit, you know, um, funkier. And now it's just a like a, a I don't know how you'd call it. Um, it's not really, even really a New World style pale ale. It's just a, a really beautiful drinking pale ale that is just very very pleasing. So look, you know, you can get yeah. Look, and I'm and I'm sure all the guys who are at White Rabbit now and, and those who who came before. Will will would agree that uh, the move to Geelong has not done um, the the beer any disservice. No. Um, you know that the, there's just a lot more time, effort, and money spent on White Rabbit um, than than was ever able to be sort of done before. So in that respect, yeah, it's it's it, it does show that um, that particular brand has has been revitalised by um, you know by new ownership. And you can get all caught up in the politics of ownership, um, but. The, the beer is the beer, and they make very, very good beer. But talking about the politics of ownership, uh, last week we also saw the Craft Beer Industry Association vote to change their constitution and uh, change the membership rules uh, in, in in a way that excludes uh, you know, large brewers. Yeah, and the name. So I was and, and the name Independent Brewers Association. Yeah. yeah. Although I was speaking to to uh, Will Tatchell from a uh, good friend of our, of the program from uh, Van Diemen Brewing who is leading a bit of a push to rename it the uh, Independent Brewers Union, just so we can call it the IBU. <laughs> Great idea. Great idea. Because there, there are, I think, uh, one of the things was noted was that you've got the Independent Grocers Association, IGA, but then their anachronism for the overarching, or there, there are some, another um, IBA, Independent Brewers Association, you know, IBA acronym, so... I think IBU is a, a very nice nice name, but the um... yeah. Although although Chris McNamara really doesn't need any more excuse to you know march in the streets and all that sort of things. Do you have any thoughts Leading about the, the decision itself, Prof? Um, uh, no, look, I haven't really had a chance. I've, I've just yeah, look, without trying to be a cop out, um, I've just been too busy to sort of to, to sit and digest it all and and to sort of to think about it. What about you? Well, you know, we, we've talked about it ad infinitum. Um, I, you know, I've sort of weighed in and 
a fellow by the name of Ben Etoff, Eto, uh, on, on Facebook, I think summed it up. It's called Independent BNL, which obviously means we get to argue about how many investors or rich uncles somebody had. Sure, the name's changed. We get to argue about a whole different range of things now. Look, ultimately, it, it allows small independent brewers to define themselves as something other than big brewers. And, you know, I don't want to sit on the fence, Prof, but, you know, I can see both sides of the fence. And as the White Rabbit shows us, the big guys, whatever you call their beer, can make great beer. And whether they call it craft, they call it craft, or they can't call it independent. The one thing that I have noticed uh, over the last few years is that, you know, actually, I'll I'll take a step back. The, The big guys always argue that ownership doesn't matter as the quality of the beer. And of course, you would say that when you were owned by a big multinational brewing company. They enjoy a lot of advantages in terms of the size of their labs, the, the quality of their brewing equipment, distribution, uh, you know, scale that gives them uh, cheaper beer. The one thing that they don't have is being small. And in, in, a, in a modern world where a lot of people like the story behind a brewery um, and they like to know that it's a small independent business uh, buying it, the big guys just don't have the capacity to be that. And yet we are seeing a lot of offshoot brands that are the big guys giving the appearance of being small. And now we've seen Line by Byron Bay, they're starting your Monday, they've got Kosciuszko, which are all small local brands designed to give the average consumer, the non-invested in the category consumer, the perception that the, that, that sort of warm glow of buying a small brand when in fact they're buying from a from a big brewery. And I think seeing the way that the big guys are skewing their businesses to cater to that market, that's a tacit acknowledgement that people do want to buy from small local businesses. And they, they can talk all that they want about the quality of the beer, but they know that people are also responding to the brand. And you know, whether it's, you know, the beer that's brewed from 1,800 kilometres from here or, uh, you know, Matilda Bay or any, any of those, or does it even exist anymore? But, you know, they, they are really starting to try and portray themselves as being small, which is the one thing, the, the one advantage that they will never have. And I think the Independent Brewers Association will hopefully give small brewers a chance to market themselves in a way that sort of stakes out a claim um, and gives them a, a marketing option. But even there, I think... Ultimately, that comes down to how strong your your own personal brand is, because yeah, uh, yeah exactly, yeah. So and look, and look, the other thing too, the, the other, I guess, you know, law of unexpected consequences, that or maybe expected in this in this instance, but um, there'll probably be another couple of breweries who will join the artist formerly known as CBIA, uh, the IBA, um, who wouldn't have joined before because you know the big guys were were, were part of the team. Hmm. I mean, I'll be interested to see, uh, you know, whether David Holyoke, for example, um, now, given that that was his big, uh, you know. Plus, I mean, that that was kind of the sticking point, wasn't it, for, for a lot of the for the um, Akbar um, guys? Yep. For so long. Well, that was what they said. That, you know, that, that was what they nominally said, but whether there was more to it than that and it was just easy yeah. for them. But uh, look, you know. As we said before, watch this space. Uh, of course, it's not a perfect, you know, uh, definition. Wherever you cut the cake, there is always going to be blurring on either side. And, you know, for example, if Coca-Cola didn't own its brewing interest in Fiji, it could be there. And I, I point everybody to the, the, the terrific article that James Atkinson wrote, you know, looking at the new definition and, you know, pointing out that at the moment, Crafty Bavarian, which I think is, is a three quarters of a billion, you know, $750 million private equity group that owns all sorts of 
you know, everything, you know, like dog food and all of that sort of thing, but then also has the Crafty Bavarian brand, which is tacky. Their beers are pedestrian and, you know, they, they, they tell a, what I think is a dodgy, you know, deceptive story about a couple of mates uh, decided to, uh, to, to create a brewery they would still be eligible to, to join. So there is going to be that sort of uh, mess at the margin. But for, for the majority of them, um, I think it's a, you know, a, a positive thing. Mm, the future of craft beer, it's, um, it'll be interesting. Uh, well, and we are going to talk, that's what our panel discussion was about. Just before we move into that, Prof, and that was a nice little segue, but I'm just wondering if we ticked off our list. Was there any other news? No, that's all I have. Um, I, think, as I was kind of inside the bubble looking out this week, so I don't know what else happened. I think there's a whole world of beer out there that might have to wait till next week. Yeah, yeah. Let's give us something to talk about next week. Well, and we are replaying the discussion that we had at the Crime Malt Trade Hub at Good Beer Week uh, upstairs at Beer Deluxe, where we had, I don't think it's over-egging the pudding too much to say that we were absolutely thrilled and honoured to have Ken Grossman from Sierra Nevada on two of the panels. Um, and he was joined by the Crafty Pint himself, James Smith, the chair of the Craft Beer Industry Association, as it still is. As it was then. Or was then and is for another 27 days. Um, Peter Fielding and also Luke Nicholas to join us for a bit of a discussion looking at these topics and what is the future of craft beer. So without any further ado, we might play that discussion panel. Uh, my name is Pete Mitchum. Um, it is my pleasure to welcome you on behalf of uh, Cryer Malt to the Trade Hub. Um, and I should also point out, um, I'd like to uh, a special mention to uh, a good friends at Rastal who have, um, is that the correct Rastal, uh, who have provided the beautiful drinking glasses that you are drinking from. So thank you very much to them. And of course to Cryer Malt for uh, creating the Trade Hub. Uh, this is, I think, the second or third year uh, that we've been involved and it's been a great opportunity uh, to get the industry together but also um, it's great that we do get so many uh, people, just punters, just drinkers uh, or you know, within the industry as workers, whatever, the non-brewing side of um, the industry to get this, I guess, sharing of ideas. Uh, for those who are unfamiliar with um, Radio Brews News and Australian Brews News, the website, um, tagline is beer is a conversation that's pretty much how this is going to go we will introduce the panel they'll have a little bit of a chat um, we'll start talking about um, the sustainability topic of skills uh, which is this our third and final seminar for the day uh, roughly 15 20 minutes or so that should take up then it's over to you guys and it's as interactive as you would like to make it so it's the question and answer part so if we can hold the questions for the first part until all of our guests have had a chance to I guess uh, say their bit, um, that will hopefully answer most of the questions, and then any other questions or comments, and we go pretty much wherever the conversation takes us. Um, and that for this um, part of the thing is it for me, and I shall hand over to uh, my partner in crime, Matt Kierkegaard, to kick us off. Thanks very much, Pete. Thank you very much to everyone who's stuck with us all day, and uh, the, the new arrivals. I, I guess this is the panel that not that the others haven't been interesting, but this is where we free range a little bit more um, and potentially even go off the reservation. Uh, the, the panels have all been about sustainability in various forms, whether it's skills sustainability, environmental uh, and business sustainability, and uh, now we're looking at the sustainability of craft beer, and it, this one is titled The Future. And this is where we perhaps uh, delve into the political and start looking at some of the uh, other aspects um, of our craft beer. We've got a, an absolutely superb panel um, to do that. Um, 
Joining me uh, down the far end, uh, James Smith, who I think, uh, <laughs> given that Australian Brewers News, uh, and the full tagline is, wine is a lecture, beer is a conversation. Um, we, we, we like what we do, but I think uh, it's fair to say that James Smith uh, runs Australia's leading craft beer website. Um, it is the place that Pete and I go any time that we want to uh, research any beer, um, any craft beer in the country, it's a site. Uh, so James has his finger on all of the pulses of uh, craft beer in, in the country and is very well placed to talk about what's happening and give a perspective on where we're going. Um, we've also got Peter Fielding, who is not only the Chief Entertainment Officer um, for Burley Brewing uh, and a craft brewery in its own right, but she's also the Chair of the Craft Beer Industry Association, the body charged with really uh, creating the craft beer culture and the sustainability um, for craft brewers. Um, Luke Nicholas, who is uh, the quietest man on the panel, um, <laughs> right now. <laughs> uh, Luke from Epic Beer, which uh, again is one of the uh, enfants terribles um, of the uh, beer brewing world. Um, he knows how to use hops and he uh, has very strong views about craft beer and sustainability. Um, and finally, the man who probably needs no introduction because he was introduced last time. Um, <laughs> the three people who were here. Oh, the three people, uh, Ken Grossman, who uh, is the founder of the Sierra Nevada Brewing Company back in 1980 uh, in uh, Chico, in California. Yep. Um, and uh, I, I think has potentially influenced more modern day craft brewers uh, through what he's done and uh, the business models and a lot of the ethos behind breweries than uh, any other brewer um, here. So uh, a perfect man to have uh, discussing uh, not only perhaps the, the past with craft beer, where we've come from, what's changed, but then also looking into the future. So I guess uh, have a very general Beer is a conversation, and the conversation goes where the conversation goes. Um, but we might just start with, uh, in starting down the far end of the table, James, gazing into your crystal ball, um, where do you see the future? Of, you know, what do you see as being the future of craft beer? Um, thanks, Matt. I, I guess we're probably at a time where um, it's murkier in the crystal ball than it has been for for a while, certainly in the time I've been involved in craft beer, I think there was quite a sort of linear progress the first four, few years that I've been over here and writing about craft beer. It was all about, you know, I guess, building the industry in Australia, um, getting recognition, getting people to accept that craft beer wasn't just a fad and wasn't going to fade away. Um, and that was, I guess, for a number of years that's been happening. And then in the last year or so, things have started getting um, more interesting, I guess. There's more shades of grey um, at every level of the industry. Um, I think, you know, I'd, I'd think called my first article I wrote this year through the looking glass and was sort of predicting some of the issues that might, might come up. And I think I said in there it was either going to be the, we're entering maybe turbulent or tumultuous times as, as craft brewers here um, and, and globally. Um, so I think, you know, whether, you know, there's, Discuss, there's discussions around sort of ownership, discussions around whether the market's becoming oversaturated, discussions around, um, you know, um, how, how many people are going to survive and where we're going. And I think um, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to say. I think the industry is going to keep growing. Um, who, quite who is going to still be a part of that industry, who is going to own, uh, um, you know, the greater percentage of craft beer as it, as it keeps growing. Um, even what you know, beer or you know, craft beer or good beer in Australia sort of um, exactly means is still being debated. Um, 
it's good for me and I guess good for you guys as well because there's there's more and more to be to be writing about and I guess if I look at talking about myself with Crafty Pint I guess that's having to evolve with the industry as well yes we still want to do the fun stuff and talk about what's happening and the opening and the new beers and everything but increasingly there's a need I think as journalists or beer writers if journalists is a bit grand for what we do um, to be writing about issues and to be sort of addressing what's actually happening at, you know, in the industry and, and maybe under the surface. And yes, it's amazing. The quality of beer is getting better. There are amazing new styles being developed. There are people developing bar barrel programs. But there's a lot of stuff going on as well that is more maybe interesting and controversial than he's discussing. So I guess as for the future, it's probably tougher to say. I'm sure there is a bright future, but I think people are going to having to sort of grow up and realise that, you know, there's a need to be more serious and more professional and um, it's, yeah, maybe in a couple of years' time things will be clearer, but it certainly seems to be, you know, even with, I guess, there's, there's more American breweries here, for example, this year than we've had at Good Beer Week before, you know, because I guess more of them are looking seriously at export as well. There's, um, you know, the arrival of um, Goose Island over here, which is going to have access potentially to venues that people don't through the partnership with um, CUB. So all those things are adding to the picture. Um, so, yeah, the crystal ball for me is, is pretty murky, but, you know, it's going to be a lot of fun writing about it, I guess. Uh, Peter Fielding, I, I guess you, you could wear any one of your hats uh, to, to answer this question, um, and, and I'll let you maybe nominate the hat that you're uh, uh, speaking for, whether it is as CBIA or as the uh, head of a, a large regional brewery. Um, how does craft beer, do, and we won't go into definitions of craft beer, I, I believe that, there, that that's a topic that's up for discussion. Uh, well, there is also a discussion uh, going on. You've got a board meeting tomorrow that may or may not be discussing that uh, very topic. Um, but how does the modern incarnation of interesting beer um, that we call craft brewery stake out its place to keep itself relevant and viable um, and sustainable into the future? Yeah, well, I wish I knew the answer. I'd be <laughs> We're all kind of figuring that out. Um, look, for me, I guess in the... I'll put, I'll put my Burley Brewing hat on first. Um, it feels a little bit like deja vu for me at the moment in the industry because we, of course, had a brewery in America um, in the early 2000s. And at that time... I think that the total, can you probably know these number, numbers better than I do, but I think there were about maybe 1,200 breweries at that time. And at that time, people were talking about, are there too many? Is there room for more? And now there's more than 5,000, and people are still saying, are there too many? Is there room for more? So um, I think having kind of been through that, lived that once previously, now hearing that kind of discussion starting to happen here, honestly, I kind of go, yeah. You know, it, it, if if all the, you know, I think we've come. We're about 400 breweries now in Australia, or beer businesses, however they're defined. Um, you know, if every new brewery that's opening wants to develop a pale ale and have it go nationally through the chains and sit on the shelf, of course, there's going to be a limit um, to how many can do that. So what's happening now, of course, and what has to continue to happen is, is we have to continue to innovate and think differently, not just with the beers, but with the business models and everything else. And it's really exciting to see um, the different ways that people are thinking around that. And of course, those who've been around for some time have to also continue to think about that and, and um, you know, create new directions in their businesses, in our businesses, if we need to. When we started Burley Brewing 10 years ago on the Gold Coast, we couldn't give away free beer. 
that's how much the industry has changed. You know, we stood in bottle shops and we'd be like, oh, try this. <laughs> and it was just so new, particularly on the Gold Coast, that, that you'd get anything that didn't have, you know, a recognised label on it that people were almost too scared to try. So, you know, that's only 10 years ago. You look at how much has changed and I think it's um, super exciting as to where we'll be in another 10 years and, and I think very positively about, you know, what the next 10 years might look like. Um, and it'll be exciting to see how it evolves. Um, Luke Nicholas, I'm just going to let you speak. <laughs> how long we got? Do you, do you want a question or do you just want to make a statement? Oh, I've got so many thoughts. Um, where do I even start? What's the question here? The future of... Um, I, I think a lot of stuff I read right now is that um, the sky is falling and it's, it's horrible. I think it's because people are going specifically the US, it's like, well, maybe there's not going to be double-digit growth forever and ever and ever, and you can't have that when you're looking at a 100%. It's like, it's grown pretty amazingly from when Ken started out to where it is today, and that incremental growth is really, really big compared to what it was if you go back 20, 30 years. Um, where's it going to go? I think, for me, a lot of it comes down to that value proposition from the brewery to the to the customer, the beer drinker, if you can get, deliver them something that they go, wow, that's really valuable to me, whether it be price because you've got something that's been aged in a barrel for 20 years or, or whether it's just something really simple that you can knock out real quick, as long as there's that value proposition, you've got that quality, that consistency, the customer's going to come back time after time, even if you are the 10,000th brewery to launch an IPA, but if your IPA is special enough and you deliver that value proposition to the customer, they're going to go, wow, I'm going to come and support you because what you're offering me delivers me something that I get value from. And there, there will be breweries that haven't even started yet that come out that are going to be, like, just grow from nothing because they're going to come out with, whether it be their brand's going to be different or their price point or... Um, it's basically a value proposition that if they can deliver something to the customer that there's enough customers, well, they're going to stay in business and they're going to be able to continue to sell that. Whereas the, the person that's like going, right, I can use the cheapest ingredients and I'm going to get my price down and they become a price fighter, they're not going to exist because their, their customer is going to think, well, when's it going to be cheaper? I'm going to wait for it to be cheaper next week because it was on sale last week and each time I see them, it becomes cheaper and cheaper, then they're going to lose respect. They're not going to see that value because when the price goes back to where it should be, they're not going to buy it. So, I don't know, that, that's just one thought. <laughs> Where do we go from there? Um, I think, think the future's really positive for craft beer. I think it's become a lot of people um, jumping in because it's very, become very attractive. There's, they think that there's a lot of opportunities, and when people start thinking about that, that's the wrong time to go out and buy a brewery and go, right, I'm going to set up a, a craft brewery and build a brand because when, it was, when it's looking really good, that's when it's starting to get hard. And it's getting hard. But like I say, it's like if you can deliver something that's um, going to deliver value for whatever reason, where it's something, a new style or the price point's right or, or the branding's right for an, enough people, then you can stay in business. And that's why I think um, brew pubs work. If you can click with your local community then and you're happy with that, then that's fine. If you want to be a, a national brewer or a global brewer, then that, that's a whole lot harder because you've got to be able to tap into all of those people and, and deliver them something of value. 
I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Ken Grossman, you've been uh, brewing for 37 years. You've seen yep. a lot of uh, micro cycles within the, the, the larger um, cycle. You've heard a lot of people talk about beer bubbles, at, as Peter said, at various stages of the, um, <coughs> the, the game. Where do you see, where, where does Sierra Nevada see um, the future of craft beer? Actually, where does the Sierra Nevada see the future of craft breweries? Because I think we've established that craft beer has a future. Mm -hmm. Do craft breweries have a future? Do all of the uh, 5,000 that we see in the States have a future? Uh, I, no, absolutely not. Uh, you know, as was said earlier, it's a little murky right now. Um, I've lived through um, some cycles. Uh, in the 90s, we saw craft beer growth go to zero uh, for a couple of years and a lot of breweries struggled and there was fallout and um, that was driven in part by quality issues and by branding and by some pressures put on by the, the, the larger brewers. You know, we're now in a, a unique period where um, you know, craft has enjoyed double digit growth and we're seeing something that's been unprecedented at least at the degree where the largest brewers are acquiring significant um, uh, notable craft brands um, you know wicked weed was the last uh, last week uh, with anheuser-busch imbev um, and that's a different point in our evolution as an industry and it's uh, not necessarily a great um, place for the consumer i mean some people argue now i can get those brands all over the country and you know the anheuser-busch network is delivering those beers to markets that they were never able to deliver before but as part of that whole transition, they're starting to brew those brands now in their larger facilities, and there's no way you can have a you know handcrafted, bottle conditioned, sour, whatever the category, uh, be produced in those uh, you know large production breweries. It's not going to happen. They just don't have the. You're the, getting up there in size yourself. We are, but uh, you know we, we we still bottle condition. We still use whole hops. I mean, we built our breweries specifically to make our beers the way we want to make our beers. Uh, that's much different than taking an existing, um, you know, four, eight, twelve million barrel brewery and trying to fit in a brand like ours through that process. I mean, batch sizes are you know thousands of barrels per per brew, and then. You know, handling things that you know aren't pasteurized. Those big breweries will pasteurize everything. If you want to make a you know a truly craft sour or bottle conditioned dry hopped beer, um, you know, going and trying to push it through a big facility, that's not going to happen. So, uh, those beers will change. Uh, undoubtedly, the ones that have been uh, picked up and, and taken through those larger facilities have changed. There's no question about it. I've uh, tasted tasted them. Um, so I think that's just a different place in our evolution. Uh, it is exposing more consumers to craft beer, but I think the bigger challenge long term will be access to market for a lot of brands as the uh, larger players get larger and start to, to demand more shelf uh, control, um, you know, having a place for uh, the hundreds or thousands of, uh, of local brands that want to be sold through the distribution network is already starting to be a bottleneck and, and you're not going to be able to get distribution. I mean, the U.S. marketplace is different than, uh, than Australia in a lot of ways, but uh, you know, we've got some of the same challenges. And I was surveying some liquor stores uh, this last week and you know, a lot of the brands that are on the shelves are coming um, you know, as faux craft brands from large uh, producers here in Australia and if the consumer doesn't know the difference, see the difference, or care about the difference, uh, again, it's going to displace uh, you know, true, passionate brewers who got into uh, the industry to make great beer and uh, uh, get it on the shelves of their consumers. Um, Peter, 
You mentioned that you couldn't give beer away when you sat on the Gold Coast, and surprisingly, the Gold Coast was a beer desert. Um, they had a brewery there, you couldn't get the beer into your surf clubs, you couldn't get it. You created a market um, in a lot of ways. You got through those periods when it was very, very hard. And now suddenly that there is this excitement around craft beer, there are, I think, literally a dozen breweries um, in, in the same patch. And you hear people say, well, Burley, they're so big. You know, there's just nothing crafty about them anymore. You know, we want the people who are brewing, you know, punching out a keg at a time. Um, how hard is that um, to manage? <laughs> that, that's, a that's a takeover offer, is it, uh, Luke? Again. <laughs> How does Burley manage that? You know, to, to grow a brewery, you've got to grow your consistency, you've got to get your supply chain, you've got to, dare I say, bring in business practices, um, but you need to stay relevant to what the market expects. How big is that challenge and how is Burley uh, managing that? Yeah, look, it is, it's, um, it kind of happened suddenly. We, the, you know, for so long you're kind of fighting to, as you say, create a market and, and become something. And then it almost feels like all of a sudden it was like, Oh, well, yeah, yeah you're good. You're, <laughs> let's, let's look elsewhere now. Um, so there wasn't kind of, or it felt like almost there wasn't that time in the middle of actually um, kind of enjoying being the hot thing for a while, you know. Um, but no, look, we, we just, our first priorities in the business, top three priorities are quality, quality, quality. And, and that's been the same since day dot, and we just keep sticking to that. And um, that the, the message and the relevance of that message and the way that message is told and what it means has perhaps changed over the time. Um, but it is about continuing to tap into uh, the consumer and the changing consumer mindset and um, being able to display what, what value it is that you are delivering um, in, that, in that sense. And so, um, you know, we, I suppose we've just, we've, we've always been very committed to what we wanted to do and, and knew kind of um, how we wanted to brew and what we wanted to be and what, what we wanted it to feel like to work at Burley Brewing and all those things. And we've just stayed absolutely focused on it and um, had to be nimble and flexible in the marketplace. I mean, yeah, we're a reasonable size, but still 75% of our beer is sold within about three hours of our brewery. So, and, and that was always part of our mission. Um, and so we've just really, you know, stuck at it. Um, when we first started, we couldn't, we really couldn't sell beer on the Gold Coast. We had to essentially ignore the Gold Coast, go to Brisbane. We called it the rock star theory. You have to kind of go away and become famous and then come back. And everyone goes, yeah, we love you. You're from here. Even the ones who are from New Zealand, we claim them too, right? <laughs> so, um, yeah, it, it, it is. It's just kind of, yeah, staying, staying nimble and, and uh, rolling with it. And, uh, but um, now that we've got company on the coast, it's actually, it feels a bit more like a team sport. It's actually really cool that we're all there kind of um, able to influence things together. And, and put my CBIA hat on for a while. That, that's essentially what CBIA is about. You know, but there's massive brewers out there who can influence the market on a whim. Whatever they want to do, they can do. The only way we can do it is to stick together and as a collective try and influence where things go. And that, that's what I see as the, um, the biggest job but also the biggest opportunity for us as a, as a collective group of independent brewers moving forward is to try and help drive consumer awareness and, and um, whether it's market access or um, rules and regulations and all the rest of it, we, we have to be together as a strong group to be able to influence that stuff. James Smith, um, 
Uh, something that Pete and I have talked about on Radio Breweries News a couple of times is as the number of breweries grows and breweries are starting to produce similar styles of beers, once you've got 30 pale ales um, on the market that are all good quality, that are all easily available, it starts coming down to such things as price. Yesterday on the Crafty Pint you uh, published a terrific article from your secret brewer um, looking at the issue of breweries um, potentially dumping beer on the market, supplying beer at below cost. Um, tell us a little bit about the article and uh, you know, do you think that that is ultimately a damaging thing for beer where um, for, for whatever reason brewers are selling beer at below cost in order to get tap points or just get rid of excess capacity? Yeah, um, I'll have a question to come after that as well. Um, yeah, I guess the, the article, people haven't seen it, I guess many of you won't have done. Um, we started something a few months ago called The Secret Brewer, where a brewer or different brewers can come to me with a, uh, something when they get off their chest, um, and we present the article, then take the key features and put them to other people for responses, so there's a second piece up today. Um, and something that's been going on, I guess, for the last couple of years, in particular, mainly in Melbourne and Sydney, I believe, is $200 or under sub-$200 kegs hitting the market from small breweries. Um, and... I guess you know various points were raised, and you know there's a venue owner responding today and saying that he sort of sees a red flag when someone comes in with beer that cheap. You know, is it you know is it old beer? Is it you know is there, is there something? What what are they actually trying to achieve? Um, but you'll speak to other people who practice that. You know, there are small small brewers in Melbourne that operate that way, and you chat to them, and they might want to go on the record for the articles, but. It's like, well, if that's part of our growth plan and our business plan, then is it any different to offering some other incentive? Um, I think what it's sort of come back to from most people you speak to is, but ultimately, if you, you know, have a brand that you respect and people can respect and the quality's there and you provide good service, hopefully that will out. I guess people's fear is that, you know, if there are venues out there know they can get 170, 180 or three plus three keg deals or whatever, uh, they might decide to keep playing that game and it closes off even more of the market to people who want to stay at what they think is a realistic price point. Um, and potentially it might, you know, it could devalue craft beer as a brand. Um, you know, like I said, there are people who will argue that it's, you know, that's the way it's going. And I, there, were, there were stories from coming back from CBC in America about, you know, sub $100 kegs of IPA there. Um, People saying that when Lagunitas is fully cranking at its brewery in Chicago, that maybe there'll be well under $100 kegs of its IPA going out there. And, you know, that's, I guess there's, different, you know, there's differences in price points anyway with beers between here and there. But I think as Ken alluded to earlier, this sort of race to the bottom, potentially price-wise, you know, are you going to keep loyalty to your customers or are they going to go looking for the next cheapest thing? Um, I guess we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens, and maybe some of those people will struggle. You know, how do you bring your price back up once you've once you've hit that point? But um, yeah, I think what it's come back to is, and it, you talked about it as well, it's quality. And I guess you know, your other point about there being say 30 or 40 pale ales on the market, people are if they. I guess have a palate for good beer, will stick with the ones they know are good, or they might start looking for the ones that are fresh, or maybe they'll support local. You know, there's, there's, other, there's reasons to, to keep loyalty, and I don't know if being the cheapest on the market is the way to do it, especially if you're selling cheap cakes, because the chances are those venues aren't passing on the saving to the customer. Um, so, yeah, that's essentially what we've been looking at the last day or two. Ken, is that an issue that you deal with in the, in the US? Uh, most definitely. Um, and the 
some of the largest uh, international brewers have been doing that regularly, um, you know, sub $80 kegs in certain markets, and uh, they can do it because it's not the, you know, it's not the significant part of their business, uh, but it damages all the brand equities of, of the other small brewers in that market. You know, just impossible to compete with. Throw my quick question in. You're talking about, um, I guess you used the, the phrase um, faux craft, and it's going to be for both of um, the international brewers here. Um, there's been a discussion around independence that's going to sort of potentially come to a head this week um, with Australian breweries. Um, when you do have brands that aren't necessarily coming from small independent craft breweries, but they maybe look like they do, how do you get that message across? Because for the most part, most people probably won't care. And, but for those people that potentially could care, how do you make them care? How do you get the message across? And how do you make them, I guess, want to care? You know, and it's so that they can know that three quarters of the beers on the shelf or half the beers on the shelf in Dan Murphy's are actually coming from two or three companies. And these are the ones that if you want to support small and local, these are the ones that are, you know, your, your local brands. I know the Brewers Association is working on some initiatives around that as well. But, um, you know, I think it's um, honesty and, and transparency and, you know, how you communicate about your beers and your brands. And it's true, some consumers don't care. But I think um, the, hopefully there'll be a growing percentage of the consumers who do care who makes their beer and where it comes from. Um, just got to get the word out. Luke, do consumers care who makes their beer? <laughs> yes, they care. Um, but I think, well, specifically in our little corner of the world in New Zealand, it's, I see the market as people still need to be educated. A lot of purchases are made on brand or made on packaging or attractive colours or pretty pictures, and which essentially is the first way um, someone new to craft goes into to craft beer, because I remember... Um, living in California in the early 90s and going to the supermarket in New Zealand was like, well, you had two choices of beer with their sub-brands. And there was like, well, here's three, four hundred different craft beers. And I'm standing there not knowing what craft beer was. Well, thanks to Sierra Nevada, I did. Um, but there were, there were all these other beers. And where do you start? Because where do I go and get my knowledge from? Um, at that stage, the internet had just started in the early 90s or mid-90s. And you, you had no way of finding out. You just had to basically slog your way through every single beer and try and work out, well, what did you like? You had no knowledge base. Um, you had a few friends that might have been interested in beer and you all sat around and talked about it. You didn't, there wasn't anything to sort of start from. And I think that, the, the, I guess, each generation of people coming into craft beer have, have had it better because there's more resources, there's the internet, there's more groups, there's more organisations, there's more beer festivals. So you can get educated a lot faster. But I still think it's, it's really hard for someone new discovering craft beer for the first time and going, well, how do you accelerate their knowledge base to a point where they can make decisions going, oh, okay, well, now I know here are the, the brands that are consistently good. You can only, it's, it's a function of time. You have to drink a whole bunch of stuff, work out what you like. Um, start somehow working out what the off flavours are and going, okay, well, when it tastes like this, this isn't good. But you're talking to people who are passionate about craft beer, so you know, we are a fairly small subset of the much broader drinking market. Which what? is dangerous because I always think about this, it's like we get sucked into our own little world and we think that everyone's on the same page as us, but the majority of people have no idea. And it's like, 
they hear about craft beer, I'm sure there's people that still haven't even heard about craft beer. We did a beer dinner last week and 90% of the people there um, only came along because it was at the particular restaurant and some of them had never even heard of our brand before. And I'm just like, I started talking about, well, I just assumed everyone knows the brand and I'm talking about the beer styles and hop, hop varieties and stuff and they're just like, what are you even talking about? This beer tastes great, but I've never seen it before. I don't even know the difference between a Pilsner and a Stout. But um, there's so many people out there. So what was your question again? It's just, it's, there's, there's just so much potential for, for beer and craft beer, but it, it's that education thing and how, how do people get into that and I guess be able to work out the difference between what's good and what's bad because there's actually a lot of not really good beer out there and I think that's highlighted by... Um, the uh, Australian International Beer Awards, which will be announced um, tomorrow night. There will be 2,000 beers, but there might be 500 beers that get medals. So essentially, there's 1,500 beers that were not that great or had technical faults. So, but those beers are available for sale in the market, and people are paying good money for that, that don't know that that beer's bad. There you go. <laughs> um, Ken, one of the things, and I don't have a life, one of the things that keeps me up at night is... Um, situations like today, um, we're supporting Australian's craft brewers and yet at a conference today we've got Sierra Nevada Pale Ale which has been sent across the Pacific Ocean uh, to us, um, tasting beautiful by the way. Um, we're also drinking Goose Island uh, IPA that is owned by Anheuser-Busch InBev and is brewed locally in uh, Tasmania, tasting beautiful and fresh. Um, you know, when, when you've got both of those beers and then a, a local beer, does it, you know, should I choose the local beer or should I choose, choose your beer that has been made by an independent brewery that has grown successfully and viably and sent across the Pacific or should, you know, is it okay to buy the brewery that's, the beer that's owned by the world's largest brewer? Um, well, of course you should buy our beer. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, um, no, I, I think, uh, again, it comes down to somewhat of your sensibilities. I mean, do you want to support a, you know, a, a large multinational corporation who probably doesn't put the resources back into your community or doesn't necessarily uh, um, you know, support the, you know, the craft brewing spirit of, of being independent and brewing your own beer? Uh, but that's a personal decision, and you know people make that decision, you know, with whatever sensibilities they have. What is the craft beer spirit of brewing your own beer? Um, again, it, it's one of those topics we've seen um, large multinational uh, brewing concerns um, trying, uh, well, you know, changing the conversation around what craft means. They talk about beer quality um, and that ownership uh, matters less than beer quality, um, and. D depending on where you look, they are exactly right. Doesn't it come down to a personal, philosophical, or political view? Uh, of course. Uh, you know, and I think if you're a small brewer that makes crummy beer, um, you shouldn't have your consumers uh, support the way that uh, a, a, an independent who makes great beer or even a multinational that makes great beer. So, I mean, the beer is certainly part of the conversation, um, but I think the ethos of the brewer and the um, you know, the passion around pushing that, that boundary. I mean, the reason I'm here today is because the largest brewers in America anyway uh, chose to go down a path of making beer with no character and flavor, and it, and it took 
small brewers, I think, to show that beer could be much more than um, you know, pretty insipid, um, flavorless uh, carbonated water, which is you know where the industry was headed. So we wouldn't have craft beer if it was left up to the multinationals. So we wouldn't have interesting beers. Excuse me. Um, you know, their desire was to make the beer uh, appeal to the lowest common denominator. So very little flavor, very little character. No focus on hops or malt or um, you know dry hopping any of the things that we brought to the marketplace. And will we go back to that if we? Start I, I, drinking craft beers. You know, I, sure, I, they may have come late to the party, but they're at the party now. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I think the potential is there uh, for that cycle to happen again. You know, with all the the strong, uh, you know, independent craft brewers, it it won't happen the way it did before. I don't think. I think the the public, once you've tasted great, uh, flavorful beer, you're not going to go back and start drinking lager beer. But I think if the ownership of so many brewers that have so much market and shelf dominance, um, and those beers start to change in character and become, you know, less and less distinctive. Um, and they have control of all the shelves, I think it's going to be then harder for the consumer to be able to walk into a, a supermarket and get the range of beers that they've had in the, in the recent past. At the other end of the spectrum, we're seeing you know, people set up micro, you know, Pico breweries in their garage. Um, and whilst everyone loves to call themselves a uh, gypsy <coughs> brewer, um, sometimes it's possibly more of a dilettante brewer or even a vanity brewer. They love seeing their name they have got their day job, they're brewing at nights and weekends, just churning out one, two, three kegs at a time. Um, they are, in one sense, the epitome of the small, independent, craft brewer. Um, and yet, we were seeing a lot of those guys start to take a bite out of uh, Sierra Nevada's um, you know, pie as well. No, I think that uh, direction is great. I mean, that, that really homespun, um, uh, I, I think many of them will find it's a hell of a lot of work and, uh, you know, to make a, uh, a, a couple of barrels a week uh, in their garage where they have a full-time job. Uh, I think some of that will shake out on its own, but uh, I, I've got nothing uh, against that kind of, of uh, small brewer as long as they do their homework and make great consistent beer. Luke, you know, if people are just going to do it for 18 months, two years, um, you know, as that dilettante um, thing, but at the same time, because they're new and novel and exciting and can create anything that they want, they're taking tap or shelf space from brewers who have invested in a much longer sustainable business model. Does that hurt small brewers? The small brewers that are making? The, the, the very small brewers who are really doing it, almost hobbyists, um, you know, professional hobbyists as opposed to uh, people that are, have made a long-term commitment to, to an industry? Uh, I think on a very short-term scale. I think they are currently the long tail. We talk about it a lot that you discover a new beer or a new brand at your local bar and you find out that, well, they haven't brewed for six months because they could only afford one batch of beer because it actually costs money to make beer. And then by the time you've sold it, you actually need more money to make another batch to stay in business. But then by the time you actually get paid, you needed to make the third batch and all of a sudden they haven't got enough cash to, to be viable. Um, yeah, I think that there's the, the market's very dynamic and it's that long tail that is keeping craft beer more and more interesting, but a lot of that long tail is not viable. Um, I think it's 51% of the breweries in New Zealand produce less than 40,000 litres, which if you think about that is you wouldn't be leaving your day job. 
So we've got 170 breweries in New Zealand. So that's that's a lot of breweries. That it's a one-man band, and he's given up everything to to make beer, but he's not actually making, uh, I guess, an economic living out of it. So it, it's a long tail that I think it keeps the interest in craft, but yeah, it does put a little pressure on those um, more sustainable breweries that are wanting to grow, and it's taking a bit of bit of that growth out, but at the same time, it's creating more interest um, and bringing more people into into craft beer. So yes, it causes a bit of pain, but at the same time, it's growing the pie, so and everyone talks about growing the pie, right? Uh, I think just before we move into questions, I think one of the other, I guess, half of the equation is... Um, skills and the future of, of craft in terms of uh, the retail end. So once you guys, you know, send your you know, beer off, you know, your, your blood, sweat and tears and the hard work and the passion gets sent off and you kind of, I don't know, the sphincter tightens a little bit, you keep your fingers crossed, I hope this goes somewhere where they look after my beer and it's, and it's presented then by somebody who um, can read a, a date code, uh, who can tap a beer properly, who can ensure the glass is clean and that sort of thing. How do we, uh, particularly as breweries, um, how do you guys personally ensure or follow up or keep tabs on what happens to your beer when it leaves the brewery? Jump in. <laughs> um, oh, look, it is. It's something that's for the for a large part out of your control. Um, but you know, I said before, a lot of the vast majority of our business is close to our brewery. Part of that reason uh, for doing that is because we know that's what's best um, with the way beer is distributed in Australia um, to protect the quality and to know that chances are when people are getting our beer out in the world, it's going to be as we intended it to taste. Um, you know, we have a, a very um, um, detailed, I suppose, QA um, process throughout the whole brewery and, and we have um, a long, a big stock of control samples that we taste at three-week mark, six-month mark, one-year mark to understand how the beer is ageing. We tweak processes accordingly to make sure that everything's going well. If we get a complaint from someone, um, and clearly what has happened is that something in the treatment of the beer between us and them has been an issue, we replace it. It's not their problem. Um, and, you know, that, that I think has been a really big um, success in terms of our market engagement and um, reputation. Uh, we don't even question, we just send them, it doesn't matter where they are, we send them a fresh carton. Um, beer line cleaning is something we're very big on. Um, we actually go and clean a lot of our customers' lines where, we've had, where we have a good relationship with them, where we can do that, obviously, without insulting them. <laughs> um, but it's, it's super important. We don't put all that effort into making good beer, only to have it destroyed um, through something that, that wasn't our fault. It's not easy to do. It, um, it's a big commitment. But, I, you know, I think it, it kind of speaks to the, a lot of the conversation we've been talking about, whether it's prices being driven down, um, poor quality competitors coming onto the market, is that going to impact things? I, I think the, the common thread in all of that is it's, it's not easy and it's not going to get any easier. And, and it just means more and more and more and more we have to be focused on the entire quality of our entire businesses. Whether It's not just the beer. It's, it's our branding. It's our marketing. It's, it's you know, if... Ideally, uh, you know, the dream position for all of us is that our brand and our marketing and, and everything about our beers um, can hold their own at a price point in the marketplace. And, and that's p people want it and they're willing to pay what the fair price is for it. Um, as I said, it's not easy, but that's where our thinking is always focused in trying to make sure we're staying at that point. Because yeah. um, I know 
between Brews News and, and Crafty Pint, we're big on, I guess, you know, spreading that word of, you know, this is how you be a should taste or, um, you know, sharing skills and all that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, um, once that beer leaves your brewery, yeah, it's, it's you kind of winging a prayer, you're hoping that it gets there good. And you, you raised a question about you know, venues um, point of view. There are a lot of, if Instagram has shown us anything, there are a lot of people out there who hold themselves out to be craft beer heads who don't know how to clean a beer glass. Um, you know, the, the, the number of photos that are just being put out on social media with bubbles up the side of, of the glass just showing that it's not clean. Um, but Peter raised a, a question, um, and I don't necessarily want to go down the rabbit hole of tap contracts, but Peter raised the um, issue that uh, Burley Brewing sends staff out to clean the tap lines of venues. Is that allowed? A lot of uh, people in Australia, when they talk about tap contracts, they hold up the anti, um, you know, uh, the pay-to-play practices that, uh, that are in the US, and we've seen um, some brewers in trouble uh, recently for that. Can Sierra Nevada go out and clean tap lines for venues, or is that a contravention of that uh, policy? Um, actually, tap line cleaning has been a huge um, um, issue for me in focus, and. Uh, starting nearly 20 years ago, I tried to uh, get an industry coalition together and I reached out to uh, Anheuser-Busch and Miller and Coors and said we need to do something about tap uh, quality uh, throughout the country. I've had bad Sierra Nevada, I've had bad Budweiser, I've had bad Miller Coors. Uh, it's an industry issue, and I was uh, rebuffed the first time I, I tried to bring a group together. And then probably 12 or 14 years ago, I formed the Technology Committee for the Brewers Association, and my first project was to put out a draft quality cleaning, ma cleaning manual, and uh, it's available online, and some of you can look for it. Um, and I reached out again, and at that point I knew the Vice President of Anheuser-Busch, and I called him up, I knew the Vice President of Miller Coors, called them up and said, this is an industry issue, we really need to come together. And at that point they said, yeah, you're right, there's bad draft beer of all of ours in the marketplace. And so I put together this group, we actually wrote a, a cleaning manual and best practices manual. Uh, it's now in its third revision uh, with the Brewers Association. Um, in the United States, uh, unfortunately, uh, every state has their own laws and regulations. In some states we can clean draft lines, that is allowed. Other states uh, it's not allowed because it's considered a thing of value that you you're giving to the retailer, and the retailer has to pay for that. Um, so I tried, and this has been a little more than 10 years ago, I tried to get a bunch of the state laws changed, which was pretty futile. Um, so it's a mixed bag in the U.S., but it, it is a significant problem, and uh, you go to some states, uh, Chicago being one of them, draft beer is not in great shape in a lot of accounts because uh, there's no um, real motivation to get the retailers to clean draft lines. So it's a battle, and uh, you know it's one that as brewers we uh, try to exert as much um, you know, pressure on our wholesalers and, and at the state level to try to get consistent draft cleaning uh, policies, but it's, it's something we, we certainly are involved in and trying to raise the bar there. All right, well, it's over to you guys now. Um, questions about so the future of craft. Have you got solutions uh, amongst yourselves as a collective group? Do you have uh, questions that, um, about the future of craft that perhaps haven't been brought up at this point? I think the or do you just need to be cans of worms? Might be, uh... Yeah, cans of worms. I have to go the long way. Sorry, David, because I can't walk past the speaker. Paul, um, this is a slightly vested question, but you go to all the trouble of making a wonderful product, and you deliver it to the final point of sale consumption. 
how important is the way the product is actually treated after it's been served? And what you would prefer to serve it in? I'm sure all the panel will prefer to drink their beer out of a Rustal glass. <laughs> uh, David from Rustal, by the way. Anybody want to take that one? Um, as the non-brewer, I guess I can't really speak from the perspective you might have wanted, but I think what you'll find is, from a venue perspective, a lot of the um, the better ones will have uh, you know, make, they'll have some sort of tulip offering. You know, it may not be the the highest quality, but they'll, ha they'll have something you know other than pots or pints or, or schooner glasses now. Um, and I guess it comes down to with those venues, they're probably the ones that are respecting brewers on price, that probably are cleaning their lines, that probably are training their staff and all that kind of thing. And I guess you can sort of you get the complete package. And I guess that's what as a drinker, as a consumer, you want to see every venue doing, and as a brewer, that's what you want to have. Um, I think from looking from a, a drinker's point of view as well, most people you'd see now have at home a selection of glassware, and certainly the people that would read my website or drink your beers would, would have that kind of thing. You see the photos that go up on Instagram. Um, I try and give away glassware with branding <laughs> when I have events that I do. Um, and you do see people taking you know, an interest in, and thinking, I have this glass for this beer and these glasses for this. Um, it's probably tricky to get this kind of stuff into a lot of venues or you know, this sort of the Spiegel or what have you. Um, sorry, I shouldn't mention <laughs> competitors' names. But you know, because there is going to be that higher price point, but I think you know you do see those. I guess they'll have them here, the more affordable, thicker glass um, pot glasses, whatever the tulip shape. So you do see it in the better venues already, I think. It, it actually, just on, on that, I might even make an answer rather than uh, a question. Uh, very much the same as James. When I discovered. Uh, it wasn't even called craft beer um, 15 years ago and one of the things that the early adopters, the people that were out talking about different beers, it was the whole package. It wasn't just about the flavours, it was about the culture around beer and one of those things was glassware. You know, don't drink it out of a bottle, drink it out of a glass and that's something that I've kept with me but I've uh, noticed that uh, particularly over the last five or six years of people have, um, we've seen a lot of craft beer bars open and the, the, the same beer glasses that were always that were only ever designed to be stackable and not break when you hit somebody in the face with it, um, <laughs> and that was the you know that that was the indicia for a, a great beer glass. And we haven't seen uh, movement away from that. In fact, we've seen some of the smaller glasses that are more suited to uh, climates become the big uh, half-litre pint glasses that again are really about not breaking and being able to hold a a, a large volume of, of beer. Um, and a lot of craft brewers have embraced, seem to have embraced that, and the glasses that they're choosing or the glasses that they're using seem to be going uh, towards that as well. Um, and I'm not sure how we change that, and it's, it's something that the CBAA and Crafty Pint and, and, and we talk about a lot, but um, you know, is that something that brewers need to be doing, or is it something that brewers can even uh, in influence? Um, again, in the states, uh, many states, you can't give away glassware, and, and that's something that uh, you know a lot of retailers want and push for. Um, so the inexpensive, they're actually shaker pints, uh, they're mixing glasses. They're not really intended for beer glasses, but that is the norm across a, a lot of bars. Um, we have specific glassware at our facilities. Uh, you know, for each beer, it's it's a shape of glassware, and so we do take that seriously. And we've been trying to you know sell a higher quality glass that's still robust enough to be used as barware, but is elegant enough to, to really um, show off the, the beer. So 
Uh, we're, I don't think we're ever going to get the retailer to be like the European retailers, and again, in part because of the, the giveaway aspect where brewers in Germany give the glassware to the retailers. Uh, that can't happen in much of, uh, of the states. And so I don't know that we'll ever go full circle, but certainly the brewers can influence that. Peter, what's the, and I don't know if the CBIA has an established policy about that, but, you, you know, the, the definition of a contract isn't necessarily just paying, we want our beer through it. There, there are a whole lot of relationships that come in. Is, is, is there a, a point that we actually want to be stepping in and regulating, or, you know, do, do we find that you can easily end up with ridiculous amounts of red tape that can inhibit the, you know, positive um, improvements of client, uh, line cleaning and gla you know, better glassware in venues if venues aren't permitted to have those sorts of commercial relationships with venues? Yeah, look, I think our first challenge and, and focus is really kind of at a, at a high level and that, and that's just um, market access in general to, to kind of get down to that next level of um, the specifics of, you know, can you do glassware, can you do this, that or the other thing. Um, We've got a bigger challenge first to deal with before we before we get to that, and it is a big focus to um, try and at least ensure that any unnecessary blocks to market access or, or any um, uh, blocks that can be dealt with um, to to ensure craft or small independent brewers have have um, equal access to the market is really the first um, the first step. Um, for us personally, um, my first preference is just to make sure it's at least served in something clean. To be honest, that's kind of the first, the first step. I don't think we'll ever get to a point knowing the practicalities of it. Um, I think that you know the idea, which we would all love, that that a bar would have you know different glassware for different styles and all of that. There's there's obviously um, kind of a pointy end of the market that can do that. Um, any of you who have kind of a, a hospitality piece to your own brewery will know how difficult it is to to um, to use good glassware. Anyway, we we do it. We choose to use really nice glassware. I know that just about every time we open the tap house, half those glasses walk out the door because they're beautiful, and we've just chosen to go. Okay, that's. That's marketing, you know, we, we have a bit of a sign at the door that says that glass in your handbag, you know, <laughs> back there. But, um, you know, that, that's part of it as well. Um, but, it, you know, it's all, it's all part of the overall experience. And, and, you know, the education piece, though, if people can start to appreciate that that glassware can make a difference and so on, even if they're just doing that at home and, and um, you know, when they're drinking different beers and, and um, having that, a really cool experience um, with a beer at home, it can... You know, it all adds to the overall education and lifting of the of the market. I know that even just being at home with one or two people around trying a few different beers, how different it is to clear afterwards when you've got 25 di different shaped goblets and tulips out on the table from two or three of you trying different beers. So, yeah, I can imagine from a HOSPO perspective, it's pretty tricky. And two, two, two loads of the dishwasher after, you know, a tasting session. <laughs> But it doesn't have to be 17 different styles um, of glassware. And, and that's where it's... It's a clean glass for every new beer. Yeah, well, it, it doesn't have to be. And, and even it's not becoming a, a, a Nazi about saying this is the right style for this um, glass because everyone is going to have a different experience from exactly the same um, glass. But it's even just having... A, particularly if, when we were asking people to spend... Nine, ten, eleven dollars. Um, now that might shock you. Um, that, that's ten. not a six-pack. No, no, that, 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 that's beer. one beer. Um, that the experience needs to sort of match not just the liquid in the glass, but the experience. And that there are a whole range of glasses that would go across a whole range of um, styles quite happily. And uh, you know, I, I, some 
at the same time, I think a lot of people overcomplicate it where, you know, there are edicts about, oh, you never chill your glass. Try telling somebody in Cairns, um, you know, when it's 40 degrees and 99% humidity, not to drink their beer in a chilled glass. Um, it's just not going to fly. But just the simple fact of having a glass that is a little bit more tactile and a little bit more visual is, is, is a big thing for entrenching and elevating uh, you know, people's respect for craft beer. Any other questions? We do, we're do. we sort of kind of wrapping up on, on time. What I might do then is, um, okay, so the future of craft, um, I may walk funny, but I don't have crystal balls. Let's have a look at the next couple of years where we've got the number of breweries, particularly in Australia, growing. I think probably maybe a little bit faster than our number of new craft beer drinkers are growing. So um, taking the Homer Simpson approach, who's cut and why? Don't name names, James. <laughs> I'm very careful with that. So, so who, well, let's look on the positive side. Who survives and why? I think from the very early days I was getting involved, I'm just speak to people like Jamie um, Stone and Wood is over there now and a few other people, they'd always say there's two models that work in Australia and I think this was the message that was coming out from the CBC as well from what I've read. Generally you've got you know, a bigger production um, and a business model that's capable of servicing a large region or nationally, or you've got your own retail side, so a brew pub or, you know, something with a significant retail side. Um, a lot of people that are coming in in the middle are the ones that are going to struggle the most. I think even some breweries in Australia that have been around maybe 10 years or more, it, you could come in with a maybe 10, 12 hex system and you were new and it was novelty and it was as crappy was growing, you'd be fine. As it gets more competitive and you're trying to you know, survive on a system that size, that's where it's going to get um, tight. One thing I can guarantee for the future is that your dad jokes are still going to be around in two years' time, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, I, I think it gets back to, as we've talked about, um, the value proposition. And so long as you, whatever size, scale, model you are, if, um, if you're offering something that consumers connect with, um, that the quality's there, um, obviously the brand's involved, all the rest of it, then, um, and, and, you know, you continue to adapt and change as the market adapts and changes, because one thing that is absolutely certain is it's going to continue to change. Um, and, you know, like I said before, to look back 10 years now, um, how much has changed and, and, you know, at least that much will change again, but who knows how. So really knowing what your value proposition is and, and delivering on it day in, day out and um, minding the the quality of everything in your business, in, you know, starting with the beer, obviously, um, is going to be key. Luke, who survives and why? Oh, it's Name all been names. said. Name names, right. Um, no, I think it's that middle mediocre that there isn't any, any reason to drink that there's a lot of pale ales out there. And what's the reason you're going to pick one over the other? So if there's 100, you're probably only going to drink four or five or six in a night, right? So then there's 94 that missed out. And if everyone's doing that, I'm sure that the ones that missed out are being missed out over and over again. So it's, you, you need that value proposition, you need a point of difference, you need, and point of difference can be quality, it can be price, it can be all sorts of things. But if you're trying to be like someone else, then why would you drink that? You want to be drinking the one that they're trying to be like. So, so do we see some of those brands that are, are very well made, um, passionate, um, brewers, all that sort of thing, but just perhaps don't have the marketing now, so we just haven't quite, you know, captured the imagination. Do those guys just, do we accept that they kind of fall by the wayside, or do we accept that they're going to be perhaps a target for the, 
the multinational brewers, or do we say, you know, merge with two or three others similar to yourselves and, and keep your brand alive? Yeah, I think that um, part of um, that value proposition is brand, and brand is really, really important because, like I talked about before, it was like a lot of people entering craft beer for the first time, that's their cue to pick up that package off the shelf and go, oh, wow, I like this because it's green or it's got a kangaroo on it or whatever with a bit of gold. Um, and if the beer's really good and it's at a reasonable price that's delivering value, then you're going to do that. But if you've got a really good beer and a really horrible package, people aren't going to pick it up. You could be the best brewer in the world, and if your package and your branding isn't going to get people to pick it up, they're never going to know. And you will go out of business because no one knew to pick it up to give it a try. Uh, I think uh, I, I echo the sentiment so far. I think relevance, uh, you know, making sure as a brewer um, you stay relevant. You know, the consumer's tastes are changing. And if you, you look at it, the history of pale ale and IPA in the United States, and when, when we introduced our pale ale back in 1980 at 38 bitterness units, it was an extreme beer. And, um, you know, most people hated it because it was way too hoppy. And, and uh, you know, today that's... Uh, you know, in, in the middle of the pack or at the lower end of the pack. So I think the consumer's preference and tastes uh, are evolving, and I think brewers need to, you know, stay true to themselves, but also pay attention to what's happening with the consumer's tastes and preferences. We are right on out of time. Do we have any other questions? You probably have heaps, but you want to wait, uh, wait till afterwards and ask them in private. I can understand that. Um, if you could just please form an orderly stampede um, to get photos and get your book um, Beyond the Pale available in the foyer later for $24.95. Um, Ken will sign for you. Uh, no, if you do want to have that, um, I'm sure Ken will be more than happy to uh, at least pretend to be happy to do that. Um, but just, just be aware that he, he's shaken so many hands today that, um, yeah. I don't know what would come out in the Petri dish. Uh, but we do thank Ken very much for his time. Ladies and gentlemen, would you please thank all of our guests, James, Peter, Luke and Ken. And thanks very much to you guys for uh, supporting the Crime Trade Hub and also for uh, being part of Good Beer Week 2017. Thanks, get out there and enjoy the rest of the week. Thanks very much, everyone. Thank you for coming along. made possible by Brewpack, Australia's number one craft contract brewer. With over 100 craft beers and ciders on the roster and counting, Brewpack specialises in offering growing craft breweries a home for their packaged and kegged beer, no matter how crafty. Serious about handmade beers and with an open-door policy, Brewpack's brewers love having passionate, hands-on partners in the brewery. Thinking about craft contract brewing? Think Brewpack. And uh, yes, we thank Brewpack for not only making a whole lot of great craft beers possible, but also for making this podcast possible. There we go, Prof. Uh, mate, look, it was such a thrill. You know, as I said on my Facebook page, Achievement Unlocked, I got to have a Sierra Nevada Pale Ale with the man who created the brand 30, what, seven years ago. Yeah, you know, I mean, he's seen it all, he's done it all. And speaking to Ken, you know, the, if we if we thrown him the uh, the Pacey's poser, there's a lot of stuff that he he would have done differently, knowing what he knows now. But as he points out, you know, a lot of the stuff that that he did was well, that was that was all he could do. You know, the fact that his brand not only survived, but for all but one year, and that was last year, 37 years of not declining sales, that's an incredible achievement.
It is, although I understand that there was one article that we didn't raise, but it was the major regional breweries that have apparently had sales slumps um, this year, and I believe that Sierra Nevada is off 7% this year, something around... This year, that's, that's what I'm saying. This, yeah. this year was the... Or, or sorry, yeah, 16, 17 financial year was the, the first year of, of negative growth, so where, where sales have dipped. And that, that's an incredible achievement. Um, and so so just the stuff that Ken had to say um, was, was just... Uh, oh, dude was very valuable and some good lessons there for us. It was the one thing that I, I guess said to me that, you know, no matter how crafty and, you know, he spoke on the sustainability panel, and I think it might have actually been in the sustainability panel that he, he raised this when he was talking about the environmental you know, consequences and the footprint and you know, he just reeled off. I think he spent 10 minutes talking about all of their sustainability initiatives. And I, I asked him about sending refrigerated beer across the Pacific and uh, whether or not he would open a brewery over here. And he says, oh, yeah, only 2% of our volume goes overseas and it's not a big market for us. And there was just that little part of my brain that sort of thought, yeah, but still, you've taken the time in your busy schedule to spend quite a bit of time down here in a market that obviously you're wanting to develop. You wouldn't come down to Australia unless you were interested in seeing more beer sales down here. And yeah, so it was, it was interesting to see that even when you're at that really craft end of the market, all of those things, that you still have a brand to protect and a story to tell um, that is a, you know, a subtle, gentle spin on on the truth. Hmm. Did that make sense? Like, yeah. So you know. No, I just. I, I, <laughs> hang on. Uh, carpe. No, what is it? Uh, mea culpa for Matt. Oh, mate, that, that wasn't mea culpa. No, look, it's. No, no. I'm just. You just. You will have to backpedal out of that somehow. You'll, why? By explaining. Don't do it now. Let's do it for another episode. Let's see what. Let's see what the. Let's see what the feedback is. <laughs> He is a legend and his beer is superb, And but I just suspect that it was a little bit, you know, uh, dig up. Mis- uh, no, no, no. no dude. I think that he wants to sell more beer in Australia is the point that I'm making. Okay, there you go. Which would be fantastic. That might mean we get to uh, see a Sierra Nevada brewery uh, down here at some stage. And the very interesting thing, and speaking to Adrian Walker from Firestone Walker, where it used to take, you know, six to eight weeks on cargo ships for beer to get, from the States to here because it often came via Europe and across the top, around the bottom and all that sort of thing. Um, 17 days door to door now. Wow. Massive, massive change that. And, I, and I'm pretty sure that Sierra Nevada, well, I think because they're, they're kind of just cutting the uh, straight across, sort of going a diagonal from, I don't know whether it's East Coast, West Coast, bump down to, down to Australia, whereas before it sort of went around the long way down the bottom beneath South America and across. Something like that. But 17 wow. days. That's yeah. Uh, yeah, oh, that, that's fantastic. And judging by the beer that uh, you know we were drinking, and thank you to Phoenix Beverages, which imports uh, Sierra Nevada. We got to drink it. It was tasting very, very fresh. And I recently did a tasting, a blind tasting, uh, Little Creatures Pale Ale side by side with Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. And I've done it in the past with the bottled Sierra Nevada versus the bottled uh, Little Creatures, and Little Creatures just jumped all over it. But did a tasting of the Sierra Nevada in a can versus Little Creatures, and uh, Sierra Nevada was just tasting so fresh. So shorter times and uh, having the different packaging is really doing the, uh, mm. the, the beer a lot of good. Whew, it's been a big week. It has been a big week. So, uh, oh, mate. Do we, we get any cards and letters? No. I you haven't had a chance to get out to the mailbox, have you? No, no, I, I did. Well, I've, I've jumped in. We haven't had any... Uh, Actually, there was one card and letter. If you'll just give me the chance to... Uh...
There was actually a comment from regular listener Nigel Ayling from We Love Craft Beer and also uh, his, I'm trying to think of the name of the business. Uh, we reviewed it recently. We had a chat about it. I bought the Mix Six Pack that was like 49 bucks and we had a bit of a chat about it. And uh, yes, he said, he just sent a, a comment talking about, uh, you know, thanking us for reviewing it and uh, just acknowledging that the price and for him, as a beer lover, as opposed to the man who's running the business, that you know you would pay that sort of money to do it, and that I think that was a comment that we made from my little craft beer bubble. I wouldn't pay forty nine dollars to have a mixed six pack of beer from a remote brewery delivered to my door. Um, but I do sit in, you know, you and I sit in a fairly privileged position, prof, and we spend a lot of time with brewers, and our uh, you know itch for the new and the novel tends to be scratched quite easily. Um, but I'm sure that there are a lot of people, and that's where I think I finished it by saying that if there are enough people out there who want to um, spend that money, then the business will flourish, yeah. and if it, the market will decide. So, uh, yeah, no, I just wanted to acknowledge uh, no, uh, that And 100% good that. luck to them. Wish them, yeah, wish them luck. Absolutely. Um, but, yeah, apart from that, there were no cards and letters, so we're between our uh, extensive coverage of the... Could be a week that was, um, and everything else is probably uh, time for us to sail on out of here. Um, we don't have a guest lined up for next week. Uh, we'll work something out. I made plenty, made plenty of new friends this week, so I'll flick out some emails. We'll find someone nice. Yeah, it would be great to find out a little bit more about that uh, shipping. So we'll uh, get Firestone Walker on. Uh, an upcoming episode but listeners if you do like the show please help us out we know just judging by the traffic that there are a lot of you uh, out listening and uh, listening regularly we'd love it if you jumped online and gave us a review on iTunes uh, jump on Facebook join the conversation there or send us an email to producer at bruisenews.com.au let us know what you like and don't like about this thing that we call Radio Brews News you can even call and leave a message on 0730401508 if you really like the show and want to part with a little bit of your you're hard-earned, you can become an executive producer or a producer or just simply make a donation. From as uh, little as a cup of coffee a month, you can support what we do and uh, give us a reason to keep doing it. Um, but I think, waffle aside... You better um, yeah, you better be prepared to broaden the bandwidth in the next um, episodes from now on, um, given that we are now a, a multi-award winning beer media outlet. I was going to finish on that. We acknowledged it at the start of the show, but, uh, mate, I really did want to pay special mention of James Atkinson, who won the trophy for Beer Media. You know, I think, Prof, there's, a, you know, the first three winners um, of the award, uh, myself, uh, Glenn and Luke, um, all of the time, probably have sort of taken a more opinionated, you know, arguably a blogger style approach to to the way that we write uh, james has always taken uh, a very journalistic approach to it you know he he gets in he probably doesn't write the you know clickbait or the you know taking the, the flowery pieces yeah, the, the opinion pieces um that seem to have been uh, rewarded mm. and uh just very very thrilled and honored to have him as editor of australian brewers news and we could not have been more excited that he won the trophy it was very very well deserved and i think it was great to see that that style of writing get rewarded um you know on, on, on the biggest industry showcase of the year so james congratulations very very thrilled and honored to have you as a editor and a integral part of the team so well done well done james well deserved um third time's a charm he's been a bridesmaid long enough he has and uh, but now yeah. you know Winners are grinners. Shit sandwich for second. Well and done. No longer are we a mono award winning uh, website. That's it. Time for somebody else to have a go next year. So you're going to nominate Prof? 
No, I don't think so. But I, I know you have this view that you, you don't think you should nominate for your own award, but there are 1,800 brewers out there that don't agree with you. <laughs> yeah, no, it's all good. <laughs> are you going to take us out? And we're out.